You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 25. An Unexpected Denouement. We were present the following morning at the examination of Jack Renaud. Short as the time had been, I was shocked at the change that had taken place in the young prisoner. His cheeks had fallen in, there were deep black circles round his eyes, and he looked haggard and distraught, as one who had wooed sleep in vain for several nights. He betrayed no emotion at seeing us. The prisoner and his counsel, Maitre Grossier, were accommodated with chairs. A formidable guard with resplendent sabre stood before the door. The patient, Greffier, sat at his desk. The examination began. Renaud, began the magistrate, do you deny that you were in Merlin V on the night of the crime? Jack did not reply at once. Then he said, with a hesitancy of manner, which was piteous, I, I told you that I was in Charbourg. Maitre Grossier frowned and sighed. I realized at once that Jack Renaud was obstinately bent on conducting his own case as he wished, to the despair of his legal representative. The magistrate turned sharply. Send in the station witnesses. In a moment or two, the door opened to admit a man, whom I recognized as being a porter at Merlin V. Station. You were on duty on the night of June 7th. Yes, monsieur. You witnessed the arrival of the 1140 train. Yes, monsieur. Look at the prisoner. Do you recognize him as having been one of the passengers to alight? Yes, monsieur. There is no possibility of your being mistaken. No, monsieur. I knew Monsieur Jacques Renaud well. Nor of your being mistaken as to the date. No, monsieur, because it was the following morning, June 8th, that we heard of the murder. Another railway official was brought in and confirmed the first one's evidence. The magistrate looked at Jacques Renaud. These men have identified you positively, "'What have you to say?' "'Jack shrugged his shoulders. "'Nothing.' "'Monsieur Hotet exchanged a glance with a greffier "'as the scratching of the latter's pen recorded the answer. "'Renaud,' continued the magistrate, "'do you recognize this?' "'He took something from the table by his side "'and held it out to the prisoner. "'I shuddered as I recognized the aeroplane dagger. "'Pardon.' cried Maitre Grossier. I demand to speak to my client before he answers that question. But Jack Renaud had no consideration for the feelings of the wretched Grossier. He waved him aside and replied quietly, Certainly I recognize it. It is a present given by me to my mother as a souvenir of the war. Is there, as far as you know, any duplicate of that dagger in existence? Again, Maitre Grossier burst out, and again Jack overrode him. Not that I know of. The setting was my own design. 
even as the magistrate almost gasped at the boldness of the reply, it did, in very truth, seem as though Jack was rushing on his fate. I realized, of course, the vital necessity he was under of concealing, for Bella's sake, the fact that there was a duplicate dagger in the case. So long as there was supposed to be only one weapon, no suspicion was likely to attach to the girl who had had the second paper knife in her possession. He was valiantly shielding the woman he had once loved, but at what a cost to himself. I began to realize the magnitude of the task I had so lightly set Poirot. It would not be easy to secure the acquittal of Jack Renaud by anything short of the truth. Monsieur Hautet spoke again with a biting inflection. Madame Renaud told us that this dagger was on her dressing table on the night of the crime, but Madame Renaud is a mother. It will doubtless astonish you, Renaud, but I consider it highly likely that Madame Renaud was mistaken, and that by inadvertence, perhaps, you had taken it with you to Paris. Doubtless you will contradict me. I saw the lad's handcuffed hands clench themselves. The perspiration stood out in beads upon his brow as with a supreme effort he interrupted Monsieur Hautet in a hoarse voice. I shall not contradict you. It is possible. It was a stupefying moment. Maitre Grossier rose to his feet, protesting. My client has undergone a considerable nervous strain, I should wish it put on the record that I do not consider him answerable for what he says. The magistrate quelled him angrily. For a moment, a doubt seemed to arise in his own mind. Jack Renaud had almost overdone his part. He leaned forward and gazed at the prisoner searchingly. Do you fully understand, Renaud, that on the answers you have given me, I shall have no alternative but to commit you for trial? Jack's pale face flushed. He looked steadily back. Monsieur Hautet, I swear that I did not kill my father. But the magistrate's brief moment of doubt was over. He laughed a short, unpleasant laugh. Without doubt, without doubt, they are always innocent, our prisoners. By your own mouth you were condemned. You can offer no defense, no alibi, only a mere assertion which would not deceive a babe that you are not guilty. You killed your father, Renaud, cruel and cowardly murder, for the sake of money which you believed would come to you at his death. Your mother was an accessory after the fact. Doubtless, in view of the fact that she acted as a mother, the courts will extend an indulgence to her that they will not accord to you, and rightly so. Your crime was a horrible one, to be held in abhorrence by gods and men." Monsieur Hautet was enjoying himself, working up his period, steeped in the solemnity of the moment, and his own role as representative of justice. You killed, and you must pay the consequences of your action. I speak to you not as a man, but as justice, eternal justice, which... Monsieur Hautet was interrupted to his intense annoyance. The door was pushed open. Monsieur, Monsieur stammered the attendant. There is a lady who says, who says, who says what? cried the justly incensed magistrate. This is highly irregular. I forbid it. I absolutely forbid it. But a slender figure pushed the stammering gendarme aside. 
dressed in all black, with a long veil that hid her face, she advanced into the room. My heart gave a sickening throb. She had come, then. All my efforts were in vain. Yet I could not but admire the courage that had led her to take the step so unfalteringly. She raised her veil, and I gasped. For, though as like her as two peas, this girl was not Cinderella. On the other hand, now that I saw her without the fair wig she had worn on the stage, I recognized her as the girl of the photograph in Jack Renaud's room. "'You are Monsieur Hautet?' she queried. "'Yes, but I forbid. "'My name is Bella Duvine. "'I wish to give myself up for the murder of Mr. Renaud.'" Chapter 26 I Receive a Letter My friend, you will know all when you get this. Nothing that I can say will move Bella. She has gone out to give herself up. I am tired out with struggling. You will know now that I deceived you, that where you gave me trust, I repaid you with lies. It will seem, perhaps, indefensible to you, but I should like, before I go out of your life forever, to show you just how it all came about. If I knew that you forgave me, it would make life easier for me. It wasn't for myself I did it. That's the only thing I can put forward to say for myself. I'll begin from the day I met you in the boat train from Paris. I was uneasy then about Bella. She was just desperate about Jack Renaud. She'd have lain down on the ground for him to walk on, and when he began to change and to stop writing so often, she began getting in a state. She got it into her head that he was keen on another girl, and, of course, as it turned out afterwards, she was quite right there. She'd made up her mind to go to their villa at Merlin V and try and see Jack. She knew I was against it and tried to give me the slip. I found she was not on the train at Calais and determined I would not go on to England without her. I had an uneasy feeling that something awful was going to happen if I couldn't prevent it. I met the next train from Paris. She was on it and set upon going out then and there to Merlin V. I argued with her for all I was worth but it wasn't any good. She was all strung up and set upon having her own way. Well, I washed my hands of it. I'd done all I could. It was getting late. I went to a hotel, and Bella started for Merlin V. I still couldn't shake off my feeling of what the books call impending disaster. The next day came, but no Bella. She'd made a date with me to meet at the hotel, but she didn't keep it. No sign of her all day. I got more and more anxious. Then came an evening paper with the news. It was awful. I couldn't be sure, of course, but I was terribly afraid. I figured it out that Bella had met Papa Renaud and told him about her and Jack, and that he'd insulted her, or something like that. We've both got terribly quick tempers. Then all the masked foreigner business came out, and I began to feel more at ease. But it still worried me that Bella hadn't kept her date with me. By the next morning, I was so rattled that I'd just got to go and see what I could. First thing, I ran up against you. You know all that. When I saw the dead man looking so like Jack and wearing Jack's fancy overcoat, I knew. And there was the identical paper knife, wicked little thing, that Jack had given Bella. Ten to one it had her finger marks on it. I can't hope to explain to you the sort of helpless horror of that moment. 
I only saw one thing clearly. I must get hold of that dagger and get right away with it before they found out it was gone. I pretended to faint, and while you were away getting water, I took the thing and hid it away in my dress. I told you that I was staying at the Hotel de Fayre, but of course really I made a beeline back to Calais and then on to England by the first boat. When we were in mid-channel, I dropped that little devil of a dagger into the sea. Then I felt I could breathe again. Bella was at our digs in London. She looked like nothing on God's earth. I told her what I'd done and that she was pretty safe for the time being. She stared at me and then began laughing, laughing, laughing. It was horrible to hear her. I felt that the best thing to do was to keep busy. She'd go mad if she had time to brood on what she'd done. Luckily, we got an engagement at once. And then I saw you and your friend watching us that night. I was frantic. You must suspect or you wouldn't have tracked us down. I had to know the worst, so I followed you. I was desperate. And then, before I had time to say anything, I tumbled to it that it was me you suspected, not Bella, or at least that you thought I was Bella since I'd stolen the dagger. I wish, honey, that you could see back into my mind at that moment. You'd forgive me, perhaps. I was so frightened and muddled and desperate. All I could get clearly was that you would try and save me. I didn't know whether you'd be willing to save her. I thought very likely not. It wasn't the same thing, and I couldn't risk it. Bella's my twin. I'd got to do the best for her. So I went on lying. I felt mean. I feel mean still. That's all enough, too, you'll say, I expect. I ought to have trusted you. If I had... As soon as the news was in the paper that Jack Renaud had been arrested, it was all up. Bella wouldn't even wait to see how things went. I'm very tired. I can't write any more. She had begun to sign herself Cinderella, but had crossed that out and written instead Dulce Duvine. It was an ill-written, blurred epistle, but I've kept it to this day. Poirot was with me when I read it. The sheets fell from my hand and I looked across at him. Did you know all the time that it was the other? Yes, my friend. Why did you not tell me? To begin with, I could hardly believe it conceivable that you could make such a mistake. You had seen the photograph. The sisters are very alike, but by no means incapable of distinguishment. But the fair hair, a wig, worn for the sake of a contrast on the stage... Is it conceivable that with twins one should be fair and one dark? Why didn't you tell me that night at the hotel in Coventry? You were rather high-handed in your methods, mon ami, said Poirot dryly. You did not give me a chance. But afterwards? Ah, afterwards. Well, to begin with, I was hurt at your want of faith in me. And then I wanted to see whether your feelings would stand the test of time. In fact... Whether it was love or a flash in the pan with you, I should not have left you long in your error. I nodded. His tone was too affectionate for me to bear resentment. I looked down on the sheets of the letter. Suddenly, I picked them up from the floor and pushed them across to him. Read that, I said. I'd like you to. He read it through in silence. Then he looked up at me. What is it that worries you, Hastings? 
This is quite a new mood in Poirot. His mocking manner seemed laid quite aside. I was able to say what I wanted without too much difficulty. She doesn't say... She doesn't say... Well, not whether she cares for me or not. Poirot turned back the pages. I think you are mistaken, Hastings. Where? I cried, leaning forward eagerly. Poirot smiled. She tells you that in every line of the letter, mon ami. But where am I to find her? There's no address on the letter. There's a French stamp, that's all. Excite yourself not. Leave it to Papa Poirot. I can find her for you as soon as I have five little minutes. This reading comes with kind permission of Agatha Christie Limited. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.